Good morning. Good morning. I trust it was refreshing to hear the Word of God recited. Let's uh, turn to the book of First Samuel again. We're going to look at the next person in a series of preaching on different characters from the Bible. These are people who were just like us, and therefore we hope to learn from their example. Was it the whole way? And someone asked me whether I was preaching upon Eli. I said yes. They said it ought to be interesting. And uh, in some ways, Eli is an easier person for me to preach on than Hannah. Even though we'll see Eli was not quite as as uh, good of a guy as Hannah was a gal. Because I can relate to him more. You think of Hannah giving up Samuel, her, her only son, to the service of the Lord when he was still just uh, a young child, maybe five years old. And it's hard to relate because I'm not like that. I don't, it's hard for me to give up things to the Lord. And uh, in Eli, we really see a counterexample to that of Hannah. She gave her children, her son, to the Lord. We'll see he actually put his children ahead of the Lord. With that introduction to Eli, let's turn to 1 Samuel. I'm going to do something unusual today. I'll start at the end. So, 1 Samuel... Now, I'll give you a, a quick introduction before we start reading. We'll start reading chapter 4 and verse 12. But a quick introduction. Eli is uh, the next judge in Israel. Actually, he was the second to last judge in the nation of Israel. And again, the judges were raised by God to save the people from their enemies. God led the children of Israel from Egypt. He gave to them the land of Canaan to become the land of Israel, their home. This was a a gift from God. He was giving it to them. And yet, after they went in there, they started rebelling against the Lord. And so the Lord would raise up enemies that would attack them. And then they would cry out to the Lord to save them. And he would raise judges. These are the type of people that Eli was counted among. Judges that would supposedly deliver the people. They would come to the people, they would turn them back to God, and they would deliver them from their enemies. So that's what Eli should be doing. He should be one of those people who turns the nation of Israel back to God and delivers them from their enemies. So, uh, again, a short introduction to this particular passage we're reading. So this was during the days, the last few days of Eli. There was a battle gathering between Israel and the Philistines. Philistines were the enemy of Israel at this particular time. And uh, Israel goes against the Philistines. The Philistines defeat them. And about 4,000 4, Israelites die in that battle. And the children of Israel are like, what's going on? Why are we losing? Why is the Lord doing it to us? And they're going to try to strong arm the Lord by going and getting the ark of God and bringing it into the midst during the battle and figuring, well, now God has to save us from our enemies because we got his ark right here in our midst. And we'll see what happens. This is... 1 Samuel chapter 4. Actually, I'll go ahead and start in verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter 
and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the Ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the Ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came hastily and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened, when he made mention of the ark of God, that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law Phinehas' wife was with child, due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said, Do not fear, for you have born a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The glory has departed from Israel. That is how the ministry of Eli as a judge ended. And obviously there was a a great disaster, many people died, the greatest uh, military disaster recorded for the nation of Israel in the period of the judges. And obviously it was terrible for this woman that her husband died and her father-in-law died and they were priests of God. But what really brought Eli down, what really brought her down, caused her to call her son Ichabod was that the Ark of the Covenant was captured. And you have to realize that the Ark of the Covenant represented God to his people. God was not in the ark, but that's where his presence was supposed to dwell, above the ark, between the cherubim. And when the ark of the Lord was gone, to her it was, God is gone. God left Israel. He left us. What a disaster. God gave gave them this land. He was empowering to take this land, and now God is gone from their midst, and he was no longer helping them. And uh, I don't know about you, I've had periods in my life where I felt like the glory of God has departed. Times in which I did not feel like I had the power of God in my life or the presence of God in my life. I might have been involved in Christian works and yet there wasn't the presence of God with me. I felt empty, I felt powerless. Just like the nation of Israel did at this time. And so I'd like to look at Eli. This was the end of his life. You could say his ministry as a judge was a great failure. But I'd like to focus about the decisions that led to this disaster in Israel, the decisions in Eli's life. 
So, so we're moving from the end to the substance of, of who Eli was and what decision did he make that resulted in this fall. And the good news is it will help us see what is it that we're doing in our lives that could be leading to the glory departing from our life and what can we do to have the glory back in our life. So turning back one chapter or two chapters to First Samuel chapter 2. And starting in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desire. He would answer him, No but you must give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. We'll skip to verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed his voice, the voice of their father, because the Lord desired to kill them. We'll stop there. As... uh, the passage here starts with the children of Eli. We see that they were priests, and the reason they were priests is their father was the high priest. This was part of the Levitical system. They had the tabernacle where God dwelt between the cherubim above the ark inside of a, of a, a, a tent structure, or as a tabernacle as it's called. And the children of Israel, if they wanted to offer something to the Lord, they would have to come to that tabernacle and make their offering there. And it was part of the law that the priests were going to get some of the meat that was offered as a sacrifice. They were going to subsist of the offerings of the children of Israel to the Lord. But God was very specific. For different offerings, there were different parts that belonged to the priests. And it appears that the particular offering we're talking about here was the heave offering or the peace offering in which the priest specifically was supposed to get the shoulder of the animal and the thigh of the animal. But this somehow wasn't enough for the sons of Eli. They went, or sent their servant rather, after the uh, offering was done and they got their portion, they sent their servant with a large pitchfork and he would go to the cauldron where the rest of the meat was cooked and he would stick his fork in there and take out some more so they could have more. They were not satisfied with what God has provided for them. And as if that wasn't enough, 
before this, the, the offering was fully made, part of the offering, they had to kill the animal, they would cut the animal, they would separate out the fat. And that would be given to the priest to offer on the altar to the Lord. Before they got to that point where the animal was killed, again, they would send the servant. The servant would take a piece of the meat that still had the fat on it because they wanted to roast it. They didn't want boiled meat. They wanted roasted meat. And the, the man that was offering said, wait a second, I haven't separated the fat yet. Let me separate the fat because that belongs to God. Offer that to God. And again, they said, hey, you know, move out of the way. We're taking it. So they didn't respect people's property. They also didn't respect the Lord's property. And to add to all of that, uh, when, when the women would assemble in front of the tabernacle, they used their position as a high priest to somehow induce this, these women to commit adultery with them. And so they had no respect to the purity of the women or the holiness of the people of God. What did Eli do about it? Well, we see Eli rebuking them. Eli tell them, what are you doing? These things I'm hearing about you are not good. You're causing the, the Lord's people to transgress. And God will judge you if you don't change what you're doing. And there it ended. That's all that Eli did about it. And there's uh, two problems we see with what Eli did. The first one is it wasn't enough. It didn't stop what they were doing. And it actually says that the Lord determined to kill them. It was too late. As, as we often say, it was too little, too late. His rebuke to them just wasn't effective. And the other problem we see, uh, the other problem with Eli's response is that Eli was the person in charge. We mentioned he was the judge of Israel. He was the political leader of Israel. He was the high priest. He, was, he had the highest position in the tabernacle. He was the one who would direct the other priests as far as what to do. He was their father. He could have stopped them. He could have said, you guys are out. I'm getting rid of you guys as priests. Or at the very least, I'm going to put you in some other jobs where you're not, you don't have the opportunity to do the type of things you guys are doing. And yet he didn't. He stopped at rebuking them. He didn't stop them physically from doing what they were doing. What was the consequence of Eli's action or lack of action? We see that perhaps most clearly in verse 17. Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. The consequence of Eli's action and that of his sons, which he didn't stop, so he participated in it, was that the spiritual temperature of Israel declined. People saw how, how Eli's sons were treating the Lord, how they didn't have respect to God, and they associated Eli because Eli didn't do anything to stop them. And they figured, well, God can't be that important. I mean, these are the high priests and the priests, they're the ones that are offering and we can tell what they think of God. God is not that important for their life. They're, they're just living for number one. They're just living for themselves. They're trying to please themselves. Well, obviously God is not that important. I don't need to make room for God in my life. I can do what I want to do. And so, the result of his action was a declination of spiritual temperature of Israel, or the moral state of Israel, which then resulted in the judgment of God. The failure that happened, we just read about at the end of, of Eli's ministry, was directly connected to Eli's action and his son's action, and his not stopping them from doing what they're doing. That resulted in their declination and God's judgment. 
and really God just living Israel. The ark was really a picture of God living Israel at this time. He wasn't going to dwell amongst these people that had so little respect to him. How can we apply that to ourselves today? The Bible tells us that we are also priests. We're not priests in the Levitical system. We're priests in the New Testament system, which means we have privileges and we have responsibilities. We can be as close to God, closer to God, than Eli was. And by the way we act, people gather how important God is to us and, and to a large extent how important God. We were saved to declare the glories of God. By our life, we're supposed to communicate that somehow to others. We're supposed to communicate it to people outside the church. We're also supposed to communicate it to each other. This is a responsibility we have as believers. And the way I act toward God in my life, whether I want it or not, communicates to others what God is like. Now, I, I could be completely wrong. I might suggest to people God is not important. That's not true. God is very important. And yet the way I treat God in my life will be communicated to them how they should treat God in their life. We're all responsible to one another. The scripture says encourage one another in the things of God. When God is not important to me in my life, I am discouraging you. When God is not important to you in your life, you're discouraging me. We're slowly bringing down the temperature, the spiritual temperature of the church. When I was in, in Berkeley, uh, a number of years ago, still a student, I went to uh, some sort of a Christian uh, social gathering, and I ended up talking to an older believer there. And we talked about what church we were going to. And he said something then that really shocked me. He said, I don't put a lot of stake in churches because history has shown that churches fail. And to me, as a new believer, and I was excited about what God was doing here in Calvary, and I was excited about what God was doing in a Bible study I was involved with, and it, it sounded like anathema. How can you say that the work of God, like a church, is going to fail? And yet historically, it's true. You've, it's very hard to find a church that lasted more than 100 years with a high spiritual temperature. It's, in fact, it's probably hard to find a church that lasted more than one or two generations with a high level of spiritual temperature. And what happens is the same thing. When I don't respect God in my life, and that results in your esteeming God less, and you don't respect God in your life, that results in me esteeming God less. It comes to the point where it's a place that God doesn't want to be part of. And we'll read more about that later. <coughs> Let's continue in verse 27. Verse 27 of chapter 2. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an effort before me? And did I not give the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire, 
Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded in my habitation and honor your sons more than me to make yourself fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And you will see an enemy in my habitation, despite all the good that God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread, and say, Please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. So now God is sending a prophet to Eli, and he is pronouncing a judgment on Eli for what Eli has done, for his failure as a judge to protect the people of Israel from this spiritual declination that led to the disaster that we read about. And God is very clear here as to the problem. We might uh, blame Eli's sons. We might say, well, the problem was Eli's son. It wasn't really Eli's fault that his children didn't know the Lord and they behaved in such a poor manner. But God is holding Eli accountable. And this is what he's calling Eli to account on. It was right there in verse 29. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I commanded in my, my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me? This was the issue at hand. There was Eli. He had the decision. His sons were terrible. They were causing the nation of Israel to stumble. And he could have made a decision and said, wait a second, I can take my sons and get rid of them. I'll fire them. I'll let them do you know, whatever they have to do to try to make a living. And I'll take care of the Lord. I'll take care of the Lord's people. I'll find a, a priest under me. Remember, he was old. He needed to find someone else to do the job. I'll find somebody else that can do the job. And it happens to be that he was actually training the guy right there, though he didn't realize it. Samuel was going to be the person who would really succeed Eli and restore Israel to their possessions and, and lead Israel back to God. And yet, Eli was thinking his, his sons were precious to him. And I can understand that. My kids are precious to me. And his sons were probably not much good in anything. And right now, they had the best job in Israel. You couldn't find someone who would, would have a, a, a higher job security, uh, assurance of a, of a salary or benefits as his sons right now had. And if he would have fired them, it would have meant probably poverty for his children because they were not really good in anything. They wouldn't really make it in anything else. So really the well-being of his children was in his hand. He could have fired them. But he couldn't bring himself to do it because he loved them so much. But God said to him, 
The problem is you honor your sons more than me. You love your sons more than me. That's the problem. Because the people of God were hurting as a result of what his sons were doing. And he had to make a decision. Do I care more about God and what's important to God? Or do I care more about my sons and what's important to my sons? And he made a decision for his sons. He was going to honor his sons. He was going to love his sons, put his sons before the Lord. And that's a decision that each one of us has. What's the greatest commandment? Someone came and asked Jesus that. And Jesus said what everybody knows. It's right there in the Old Testament. You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your strength. We each have decisions to make sometime on a daily basis and we choose are we going to put God first? Am I going to love God with all my heart, my soul, my mind? Or am I going to put my children first? Or my job first? Or fill in the blank first? We all have things that are dear to our heart. Maybe good things that God gave us. And yet, at times, we have to choose between them and God. And Eli made the wrong choice. He put his sons before God. And because of that, God was going to judge him. And we see here that the essence of the judgment was that God would take away the position he gave Eli and his family away. He was the judge. His sons, in a sense, would be following judges. He was the high priest. They would follow him as high priest. Well, God's going to take that all away and say, forget that. I don't want you in that position. Can you blame God? The glory has departed. In this case, the glory has departed from Eli's family. He no longer will have that privileged position of standing before God and serving God. His family will not have that privilege anymore. They lost it. God was not interested in having someone serve him who would put something else ahead of God. It's that simple. It's interesting to contrast Eli with Hannah. We talked about Hannah last week. And uh, as I mentioned, Hannah, Hannah completely gave her son to the Lord. She said, Lord, if you give me a son, he will be yours. And she was faithful. And when her son was born, she trained him. And at a young age, she brought him to Eli. And, and he was separated from her so that he can be dedicated to serving the Lord. And in Eli, we see, we saw the very opposite. He put his sons before the Lord. And it's interesting to follow the consequences of that. First of all, Eli's decision brought a great disaster on the nation of Israel. Whereas Hannah's decision of putting the Lord's first in her son's life brought a great blessing to the nation of Israel. He became, to some extent, the greatest judge, the most spiritual judge, the one who really restored the children of Israel back to God. The one whom God used to then anoint King David, who was going to continue God's new work to the people of Israel. So her decision of putting the Lord's first in her child's life was a blessing to Israel. His decision to putting his children first before the Lord was a disaster to God's people. Another difference between the two is the result of Eli's decision was a disaster for his children. His sons were slain because of his decision. Maybe if he would have put them out of the ministry, the Lord wouldn't have to kill them. I mean, well, maybe they would live lives of uh, relative poverty, but they would live lives. And maybe God wouldn't have to judge him and his family in this way. I mean, he brought a disaster on his own children. 
A lot of time we think we do the good for our children by by uh, heeding to their every demand, and yet it may not really be the best for them. The best thing for anybody we're dealing with, especially our children, is to put the Lord first in their lives. And the result with Samuel, his mother gave him up. She put him to serve before the Lord, but he, as a result, ended up being one of Israel's, if not Israel's, greatest judge. And he had a full life, a life of blessing, because God, because his mother put God first in his life, taught him to walk, to put the God, taught him to put God first in his life too. That was the, the greatest good we can do for our children is to really train them in the Lord. What application do we take to ourselves from this? Let's turn to Revelation chapter 3. Actually, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. We would look at the church in Ephesus and say, they're a great church. Look, they, they're doing all these good works. They're persevering for God. You know, wow. You know, this is a church I want to be part of. But the Lord Jesus was looking at that church and he was very concerned. Because unlike you and me, the Lord Jesus can see our hearts. And the Lord Jesus didn't like what he was seeing in the heart of the people at Ephesus. He could see that that first love they had for him, that fresh love that comes when we first understand how much the Lord loved us and what he did for us on the cross. There's a love that comes in us. We love him because he first loved us. And, and there's an excited first love when we're saved and he saw that that love was growing dull. And in fact, he says this, you have left your first love. Which suggests to me Something else was entering in them. And I don't know if it was things of the world. I don't know if it was ministries. They were a church that was very busy. They were doing a lot of things for his name. He commends them for it. And maybe sometime even Christian work can take place in our heart. We start loving my Bible study or loving my church or loving my church expansion to the point that the Lord isn't really the first thing there anymore. And God looks at that and he's concerned. And in fact, he has a really serious warning here. I mean, listen to what he says. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first work, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. I will remove your lampstand from itself. The lampstand was a picture of light, of, of the light of the gospel, of the light of the glory of God. God saved us, and we're here to proclaim his glory and make him known. And he's saying, I'm going to take that away. I'm going to, in a large, I, I interpret it largely in the same words. It's really the glory of God in our life. He's saying, I'm going to come and take it away. I'm not going to be there. I'm not interested in being in a place where I'm not loved. It's exactly with the nation. If I'm not, if I don't have the first place in the heart of these people, I don't want to be there. And that was the same thing about the church in Ephesus. If he didn't have the first place in their heart, he wasn't interested in being there. God was, was not going to have any part of what they were doing. God was not going to be in their midst. He wasn't going to refresh them with his presence. They would be like the children of Israel watching the ark of God being carried away by their enemies. The glory has departed. Why? We were doing all these good works. We were working so hard. We were doing all these things for God. Why would God leave us? Why doesn't God take pleasure in the things that we do. Well, it's similar to how you and I would feel. I have a, a wife. I love her very much. I hope she feels the same. And uh, she might do something for me. She might, you know, make some brownies. <laughs> I like that. And, and I might just be satisfied because, you know, I, I assume she's doing it out of love for me. But if I was like God and I could see her heart and I could tell the whole time she did it she was just cursing me under her breath. I can't believe I have to make brownies for him again. <laughs> I wouldn't enjoy those brownies. In the same way God doesn't enjoy what we do if it's not out of love for him. There's an interesting verse in the Bible it says all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags in his sight. Righteous deeds, filthy rags, how does that compute? Because the Lord can see our hearts. And if there's any sin that's connected to our righteous deeds, meaning they're not being done out of love for him, he's not pleased with that. He would throw it away like a filthy rag. I don't want that. Not touching that one. Think of the father saying of the son, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. In John 14:31, Jesus says this, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Everything the Lord did was out of love to God, out of pure love to God. And that's what God wants to see in our hearts. I was going to close with the story of Martha and Mary. You're all familiar with it. Jesus came with his disciples to their house, and he must have been teaching because Mary was there at his feet listening to every word that came from his mouth. And Martha said, well, there's a lot of people to feed here. And she, she went to the kitchen and was, was working and, you know, there was a lot of work. There were a lot of people. And she's like, you know, if I had my, my sister here, it'll take me only half the time. And she saw her sister there sitting at Jesus' feet. And she said, oh, don't you care about me? 
you know, sent her to help me. I need help here. And he says this. He says, Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. And, and often I think, well, good part, obviously it's a better part. I would much rather be sitting at Jesus' feet than walking in the kitchen. But that's not what Jesus meant. He meant she chose the part that I enjoy. Here she was sitting. She was loving everything that Jesus was saying. She was loving Jesus. She was worshiping Jesus. Her heart was a heart of love to Jesus. and she, He could see it. And there was Mary in the kitchen. She was working really hard preparing food and her heart wasn't a heart of love to Jesus. And that's what God wants from us. He wants us to be like Mary. If it just means sitting there and loving him because that's all we can do right now, he much rather have that than us working our real ends off and without love for him in our heart. Because he loves us. Paul says something interesting in one of his uh, letters. He says, I seek you, not yours. God wants you. He wants the relationship of love with you. He doesn't want the things that you have. He doesn't want the things that you can do for him. Unless they're done out of love. He just wants you. He just wants you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your love to us. Think that you are so different from us. We would think, what can this person do for me? And you just want us. We confess, Lord, there are so many things in our lives that do take our attention off from you. And instead of that heart of love in us, you see a heart of murmuring and complaining or just purely distracted from the things of God. And we would, Lord, that as your word says, we love him because he first loved us, that that will be our heart, that you will take our heart and make it wholly thine. We will love you as you would have us love you and rejoice in you as you would have us rejoice in you that you might be fully glorified in our lives, that the glory of God will not depart from our lives, that you might be glorified through us wherever we are and wherever we go. For we pray these things in Jesus' name.